G.K. Chesterton said a lot of great things, a lot of humorous things. One of the more serious things that Chesterton said was the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting, it has been found difficult and left untried. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that, and this is the important part, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. Resurrection. Life, it's at the very core of Paul's teaching. We see this again and again. You will hear it again tonight. Keep it in mind. As we join Paul in the last of his public trials... Acts chapter 25 tonight, he will be in the last trial. He will go on to trial before Caesar Nero in Rome. And that's not recorded in the book of Acts. Luke stops short of that. But of all the trials recorded, this is the last one. And that's interesting to me because Jesus ended his life with a series of trials. His life trials all happened in one night. Six trials, one after another, all unjust, all unfair. Paul's trials will be spread out over two to three years, perhaps even longer than that. Also all unjust, all unfair. All trying to get at the truth, which Paul keeps presenting, but nobody seems to be listening. He testified, we've already seen before, the mob there in Jerusalem. He stood trial before the Sanhedrin. He's now been on various trials over two years with Governor Felix in Caesarea. And as we pick up the study tonight, Felix has been dismissed from office. He will be disgraced and replaced. But picking up in verse 27 of Acts chapter 24, it says, After two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. (laughs) And wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. I pronounced it correctly. It is Porcius Festus. Don't think that I didn't have a field day with that name when I came across the the pronunciation. Porcius Festus. And hey, it gets better than that. Porcius Festus means pig festival. I'm not making this up. Porcius means pig or piggish. And Festus means festival. His parents must have been a couple of real hams. <laughs> oh, hold, hold on to your seats. When he was in a rush, would you call it swine flu? <laughs> of course, bathing for Porcius was nothing but hogwash. <laughs> if he cut his finger, what did he use? Oinkment. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. When Porcius got laryngitis, uh, was he disgruntled? (laughs) And of course, if he ordered executions, would that be considered a pork chop? (laughs) Porcius Festus. Amazing. He will rule for two years and he will die of an unknown illness in office. 
Because some kinds of ham you just can't cure. <laughs> Let's get back to the study. Actually, history tells us that Porcius Festus was a relatively decent governor. He only would reign those two years, and then, yes, he did pass away in office. No one's really sure how. But the previous governor, Felix, left Festus in a kind of a pig-in-a-poke situation. You ever heard that phrase, a pig-in-a-poke It's completely non-kosher, I understand that. And and I mean no disrespect to Paul, but that's exactly a a fitting phrase, an old idiom, for the situation that Porcius Festus finds himself in. Festus finds himself in as he becomes governor of Judea, a pig in a poke. In other words, Festus comes into office with a problem he had no idea he was going to get when he came into office. It's not what he bargained for, this, this Paul sitting there in prison in Caesarea. This is greatly problematic. It's a problem that Felix left for him. Picking up in chapter 25, verse 1, Festus then, having arrived in the province, three days later went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul. They were urging him, requesting a concession against Paul, that he might have him brought to Jerusalem at the same time setting an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea and that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore, he said, let the influential men among you go there with me and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them prosecute him. Remember the guys who went on a hunger strike until they killed Paul? It's been two years. So they're either dead or they found a way out of their commitment to die before they would allow Paul to live any longer. And it's remarkable to me. Two full years have passed and the Jews are still gunning for Paul. He's been tucked away in prison. And they're still seeking his death. Still following up to see what's going on with with Paul and, and how can they do away with him. This is a seething hatred that the Jewish leadership, at least, have against Paul. In the words of another Paul, they just couldn't let it be. (laughs) It's a sad but true case in point of bitterness. And these Jewish leaders have a bitter rage against Paul. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Now that's remarkable to me. How in the world can you come short of the grace of God, which is grace upon grace, which is amazing grace, which is overwhelming grace? How can you come short of the grace of God? And the Hebrew writer says that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Bitterness. Bitterness. Ephesians 4.31 Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Do you struggle with bitterness? Is there anything in your life or anyone about whom you are bitter? Or toward whom you hold Bitterness. Listen, bitterness does two things. It binds you to the past and it blinds you to the future. And even today, if you go to Israel, 
Some of us are going to be doing this in, in, in a couple or three months here. If you go to Israel, it's interesting that you will find the Jewish people remarkably friendly toward Gentile Christians. Especially evangelicals who stand with Israel. Very friendly toward Gentile Christians. However, Jewish Christians not so much. That even today, a Jewish Christian, a Messianic Jew, and there's a growing number of them in the state of Israel, or a a Christian who has a Jewish background, is not as quickly and readily accepted in Israel as a Gentile Christian. Why? They are seen as a traitor. There is a root of bitterness. You were one of us, and now you're one of them. Paul had been one of their own. Paul had been a leading Jew among Jews, a well-known Jew in Jerusalem. Now he threatened their way of life. Now he was a danger to them. Sounds actually an awful lot like Jesus, who was one of them, raised up among them. And they just couldn't handle the truth. So after two years, when the new governor comes up to Jerusalem on a goodwill visit, their hatred for Paul is, dare I say it, festering. Verse 6, boy, these are not landing tonight. (laughs) After he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea. And on the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered that Paul be brought. After Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. While Paul said in his own defense, I have committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, and no one then can hand me over to them, I appeal to Caesar. Which was a Roman citizen's right. Understand something. Paul was willing to die for Christ. Right? Are we clear on that? Is that pretty obvious? You know what he was not willing to die for? False charges. Lies. Untruths. I appeal to Caesar, he says. For Paul, martyrdom for the sake of martyrdom was just dumb. You don't put yourself in harm's way just so that you can say, I suffered for Jesus. Now, if you're suffering because you are following Jesus, if you're being persecuted because simply you're keeping faith with Christ, that's another thing. But the fabricated charges of the Jews were not, as far as Paul was concerned, worth being tried for. So he appeals to Caesar. Peter would later write in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 15, Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian... He's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in His name. Paul is not willing to suffer for lies. He's willing to suffer for the truth. He's not willing to suffer for trumped up charges. He is willing to suffer for standing for Jesus. And by the way, he still knew he had work to do in Rome. 
Turning your Bibles real quickly over to Romans chapter 1, verse 11. It should be easy to find. It's the next book to your right. Romans chapter 1, verse 11. Paul, writing to the church of Rome, and this letter had been written previously, previously before his imprisonment in Caesarea. In fact, this letter, we believe, was written when Paul was in Corinth. And so he writes to the church at Rome, verse 11, he says, I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul didn't plant the church in Rome, but he wanted to be part of what was happening at the church in Rome. He wanted to get to Rome. It had long been on his heart. And back in the barracks in Jerusalem, remember, Jesus showed up and told Paul, you're going to Rome. Remember what he said, Acts 23.11. Take courage, be of good cheer. For as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness also at Rome. Paul knew he was going to Rome. And so Paul appealed to Caesar. I appeal to Caesar. As I said, it's a Roman citizen's right. In all cases except murder, if you were brought up on any charges other than murder, and you felt like the verdict was unjust or the charges were unfair, you had the right as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar and literally to go all the way up to Caesar's court to have your case decided. Or at least to see if Caesar would accept the case, kind of like our Supreme Court. Caesar was the final word in the land. I appeal to Caesar, Paul says. And so to Caesar he will go. Verse 13. Now, when several days had elapsed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and paid their respects to Festus. So try and get these characters in clear order. Felix was a Roman governor. Remember he was the slave who became a governor? And now Festus has replaced him. He is now a governor. Festus and Felix, by the way, were both governors in the same way that Pontius Pilate was a governor 27 or now 29 to 30 years earlier. So these guys are governors of Judea. And along comes King Agrippa and Bernice. Now, what's the deal with this guy? King Agrippa. Let me give you a little background. This is King Agrippa II. He will be the last of the Herod dynasty. The final Herod to come along. There were several Herods, as you know. Uh, Agrippa II here, this King Agrippa, his great-grandfather was Herod the Great, who slaughtered the infants at the birth of Christ, around that time. His uncle was Herod Antipas, who beheaded John the Baptist. His father, Herod Agrippa I, is the one who ran James the Apostle through with the sword. Nice family. (laughs) And this Bernice who is with him, notice it's interesting, it never says King Agrippa and his wife, Bernice. That's because she wasn't his wife, she was his sister. His half-sister. Bernice, it was said historically, was a woman of absolute ravishing beauty. Bernice had a sister in Drusilla, wife to Felix. 
Okay, we met Felix and Drusilla. We will talk about what happened eventually to Drusilla in that study next year. But Bernice, this beautiful woman, sister of Drusilla, who was the wife of Felix, Drusilla's now back up in Rome, Felix is up in Rome. Bernice had a first husband named Malchus, who died after two years being married to her. Don't know if there's a correlation there. She had a second husband who was her uncle who was another Herod, and he died after being married to her for two years as well. So Bernice, the black widow, she now moves in with her half-brother, Herod Agrippa II. And rumors persisted that the two of them had an incestuous relationship. So Bernice went out and got married again to calm the rumors, but when that marriage failed, she just moved back in with Herod Agrippa II, and now the two are living together. And yes, in an incestuous, sexually immoral relationship. And then he come to Caesarea, as you will see with all matter of pomp. It's remarkable how deceived people can be in the world. Ultimately, Bernice would have an affair with a man by the name of Titus, Roman commander, the general who conquered Jerusalem who burned down the temple and burned Jerusalem in A.D. 70. She'll have an affair with him. She'll end up back with King Agrippa II because Rome doesn't know what to do with her. Think about that. She is so loose morally that even Rome can't decide what to do with her and, and, and send her away. I mean, so this is a pretty sinful woman. And a rather sinful man, Agrippa, King Agrippa, the last of the Herods, he's really king over Judea in name only. He's a figurehead. He doesn't have much power, if any. He just shows up, you know, for the royal to-dos, trying to keep up the family name. And I want you to remember all this because there will be a test in about 40 minutes here. No, the reality is the Herods were a seriously messed up, sinful family. But, the last thing to note about Herod Agrippa II is he was a student of Torah. He knew Jewish law. He knew the prophets. He was fascinated by them and was well studied on the Hebrew Scriptures. Verse 14. While they were spending many days there, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man who was left as prisoner by Felix, and when I was brought and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it is not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused meets his accusers face to face, and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. So After they had assembled here, I did not delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought before me. And when his accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting, but they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. And he nails it. The issue is the resurrection. It's always the problem with Paul. He keeps bringing up the resurrection. He's talking about this living Jesus. Everywhere he goes, it's a problem. If he would just stop 
talking about Jesus resurrected, half of the issues, if not more, would go away for Paul in his life, but he can't shut up. Why? Because he saw Him. He was the last one to see the resurrected Christ as he declares in 1 Corinthians 15. As of one untimely born, he said, Jesus appeared to me also. I saw Him. How can I not declare what I saw? What I experienced? What I know to be true? And so here we have Festus talking to Agrippa and saying, it's just a religious issue about this dead man Jesus who Paul says is alive. And that controversy remains to this very day, 2,000 years later. But remember... We cannot sidestep the resurrection because the resurrection is at the very heart of the gospel. You take out the resurrection and we have no faith. Remove the resurrection, what are we even doing here? But my friends, the resurrection did happen. And in verse 20, he's continuing on. Festus says, being at a loss how to investigate such matters, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there stand trial on these matters. But when Paul appealed to be held in custody for the emperor's decision or the Augustus' decision, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I sent him to Caesar. Well, then Agrippa said to Festus, I would also like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. Festus is a Roman governor. Agrippa is a figurehead king in Judea. Why would Festus share this issue with Agrippa? Because as I told you, Agrippa has insight to the Jews. Festus is looking for a way out. He's got this big problem, right? This issue with Paul. He's got a man who is not, who shouldn't be in jail. Who shouldn't be imprisoned at all. In fact, by Roman law, he should not be in chains, yet he is. There's nothing sticking to Paul. No truth to the allegations. But to further the issue, he had appealed to Caesar. And now has every right to go to Caesar. If Paul had not appealed to Caesar, as we will find out later on tonight, if Paul had not appealed to Caesar, he could be set free. But because he appealed to Caesar, now we've got this big legal issue, and Festus says, Agrippa, I need some insight, I need some understanding here, help me figure out what to do. How can I send Paul on such a lame local religious issue to Caesar Nero? You don't mess with a crazy man. Well, for Festus to do that, he would look the fool. He's not willing to. So he looks to the local fool, King Agrippa, and the stage is set. Verse 23. So on the next day, when Agrippa came together with Bernice amid great pomp and entered the auditorium, accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. This is usually the first stop on our Israel tour. This auditorium, this amphitheater in Caesarea. We stand in this place. It's it's breathtaking. It opens out. It's this huge amphitheater that faces out on the blue-green Mediterranean Sea. They do concerts there today. In that same amphitheater, it's pretty remarkable that it still stands. Actually, that it was unearthed and now they can do concerts there. But in that amphitheater, amidst great pomp, 
So we don't know if the band was playing. We don't know what all was going on. Flags were flying. But we know that King Agrippa comes in making a great show with Bernice and all the people in the city. It is a packed house. Get that picture. Agrippa, Bernice, Festus, the commanders, the notables of Caesarea. A Festivus (laughs) for the rest of us. This huge festival environment because, hey, you're in Caesarea, you're by the sea, you're a Roman, you don't really have much to do, you're a little bit bored, hey, anything is entertainment, right? Let's go see this Paul guy. Let's check out this this Jew that's causing such trouble. Events like this were great turnouts. So as the fanfare and the pageantry die down, Paul is brought in. We've never really talked about Paul physically. But if history be true, people like Josephus and others who have made descriptions or given descriptions of Paul, he's described as a short man with bowed legs, bald with a hooked nose and runny eyes. Not impressive. And my apologies to all short men with bald heads and bowed legs and runny eyes. Not meaning to offend. But this is Paul. And you've got this massive audience here in the amphitheater at Caesarea. The band playing and they bring in this little balding Jewish guy in chains. And it's like, are you kidding me? Really? Wow. How absurd. How foolish. How ridiculous. How perfect. This is what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen. And the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul could own that. Paul could claim that. And here comes this little bent over, chained up, runny eyed Jewish man in front of all of the notables of the land ready to make his defense. And it's just ridiculous. And God loves the ridiculous. God loves to take the insignificant and make them greatly significant. Because in so doing, when people look at someone who is insignificant, And hear the words of truth. And see the power that is behind it. They begin to look to God. They begin to understand and recognize, wow, it really isn't that guy, that girl. They don't have this. This can't be about them. It must be something else. There must be more going on here. And so through Paul, God is going to put this entourage on trial. Verse 24. Festus said, King Agrippa... And all you gentlemen here present with us, you see this man about whom all the people of the Jews appealed to me, both at Jerusalem and here, loudly declaring that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death. Sound familiar? Isn't that exactly what Pilate said about Jesus? See, Paul looks like Jesus. 
both in his innocence and in the accusations. He had committed nothing worthy of death, and yet since he himself appealed to Caesar, I decided to send him. Yet I have, found, I have nothing definite about him to write to my Lord. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate also the charges against him. What is he saying? He's saying, King, I need you to help me to get Agrippa of the situation with Paul. (laughs) Verse 1 of 26, Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. Okay, so see this. You're in the amphitheater. Sea is out behind Paul. He's down on the floor, down below on the main stage. Because the amphitheater goes up. And he's standing there in chains. And the Bible tells us, Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. So he's like this. Unless he's got, maybe has a little leeway with the chains, but he's stretching out his hands. He's talking. And he begins his defense In regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today. Especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. I'm fortunate, Paul says. See, Paul's not one to sit around and do nothing. When Paul gets the opportunity to preach the gospel, doesn't matter who it's to, he's pumped. He is jazzed. He's ready to go. And now to preach before this audience, this audience of no Gentiles in Judea, wow! He couldn't have set this up if he had wanted to. Only God could set up something like this. And he says, I am so fortunate. I am Makarios. Blessed. And it's the same word Jesus uses In the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those, verse 10, who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Makarios. Blessed. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Paul says, I am so blessed. To be here. And I don't think he's just blowing smoke. You know, this isn't like the most excellent Festus Felix type talk. This is Paul saying, this is good. I am so blessed to be before you. Why? Three things to note in Paul's defense here. Number one, Paul recognizes a golden opportunity. A golden opportunity. He sees these chains as tools of advancement. Again, how would he ever have been able to preach to this audience had he not been in these chains? James said in verse, chapter 1, verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And Paul had literally gone through various trials, hadn't he? 1 Peter 3.15 Always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, Paul said the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. 
if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Paul was talking about the Lord's bondservant. Paul is now a bondservant, literally in chains. A bondservant of the Lord, chained up for Jesus. Are you a bondservant of the Lord? You might say, well, I'm no Paul, if that's what you're asking. I'm no Paul. I mean, I don't know, I don't know, Bible like Paul knows Bible. Hey, we've been over this. When people challenge your faith in Jesus, your best testimony is your testimony. Which now for the third time we're going to see Paul's testimony in the book of Acts. Because that's your best witness, is what Jesus has done. It's not the myriads of verses that you've memorized that you can quote to people. It's how Jesus has changed your life. And for Paul, this is a blessing. It's always a golden opportunity when someone asks you about Jesus. Well, now Paul's being asked. And this golden opportunity allows Paul to, number two, go on a gutsy offensive. Verse 4. So then all the Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem. Since they have known about me for a long time, if they're willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. And now, I'm standing trial, here we go, for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. The promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O King, I am being accused by the Jews. The hope of the promise, which is resurrection. But before we get there, i got to point something out to you. There continues to be, and some of us have ongoing conversations about this, there continues to be a wrong-headed thinking regarding Israel in the church today, and it's called replacement theology, right? And some people base this going all the way back to 722 B.C. In 722 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten northern tribes were overrun by Assyria, were taken into captivity and dispersed throughout the known world. And there are those who say, at that time, Israel became no more. Oh, there was Judea and Benjamin, those two tribes left down south. But northern Israel ceased to exist. As a matter of fact, they headed on into, uh, into the west. And the tribe of Dan became Danish. Danish. I'm not even, that's not even a pun. They really believe that. The Dan, again, Danish, and, and so you've got the Danish and you've got the British and all these issues, and it's ridiculous. But that has bled over all the way down through time. It was very strong in Great Britain. It was called British Israelism. That in the 17, 1800s, there were many in Great Britain who declared that Great Britain was the new Jerusalem and the church was the new Israel. Replacing old Israel, having blown it, they were now erased from God's plan. No more part of the plan. But note what Paul says. Understand this. He refers to the promise to which, look at this, our twelve tribes hope to attain. He doesn't say our two tribes. 
He doesn't say the promise that the Jews hope to attain or Judah or Judah and Benjamin. He says our 12 tribes, all inclusive, all 12. It is a single word in the Greek. It's dodecaphulon. Dodecaphulon, the 12 tribes. And what's interesting is that singular word is in the singular. A singular group of 12. We might say the word dozen. The twelve tribes, the dozen tribes, Paul says, we're all hoping to attain to this. Singular, one group, one family, one people, but twelve tribes encompassed in this. The word hope, the twelve tribes, he said, hope to attain. Hope is present active, which means that the Paul, at the time Paul is speaking, it was in play right then. Not hoped at one time past to obtain, but the twelve tribes right now, Paul is saying, hope to attain to this. And the phrase to attain is in the present aorist, which is future. So putting all that together, Paul says all twelve tribes right now hope to one day in the future attain to the hope, the promise of resurrection. Paul completely undermines any idea of replacement theology in one verse. This is a powerful refutation game because none of the twelve tribes were lost, forsaken, or cast out. This is 784 years after the Assyrian destruction of northern Israel. 784 years later, In 62 AD, Paul declares that Israel, all 12 tribes, were still hoping to attain to the resurrection. So much for replacement theology. It doesn't wash. Not with Scripture. The resurrection of the dead is the hope of Israel. And it is the hope of the church. Not a false hope, not a vain hope. We're not hoping against hope. Paul says from 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. And remember, Paul wrote that, 1 Corinthians 15, when literally dozens upon dozens of eyewitnesses were still alive. As many as 500 people saw Jesus resurrected at one time. All gathered together. And Paul makes that bold claim as if to say, go ask them. They're still on earth. Check my sources. He resurrected from the dead absolutely. And have you noticed how consistently Paul's teaching lands on the resurrection? It is constant. If you go back, and I encourage you to do this on your own time, go back and look at all the, the defenses, all the teachings, all the offerings of Paul throughout the book of Acts, and you will not be able to find one that he doesn't at some point bring up the resurrection. It's always his go-to teaching. Acts 25, 19. Festus explaining to Agrippa, as we read a few minutes ago, they had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. Resurrection. Acts 24, verse 14. 
to Felix. Paul said this, I admit to you that according to the way, which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Acts 23, verse 6. As we trail backwards, the Sanhedrin. Paul creates a ruckus simply by saying, Brethren, I'm a Pharisee, the son of the Pharisees, and I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. Resurrection, resurrection, resurrection. Go all the way back to Mars Hill in Athens. And Paul, to those people, even while he's giving that philosophically articulate sermon, lands at the resurrection. Acts 17.18 tells us he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Acts 17.30, he says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. Resurrection, resurrection, resurrection. Over and over and over, Paul goes to this, he preaches this, he teaches this. Gang, this is our hope. And when you're telling someone about Jesus, His death, His burial, and resurrection is the Gospel. It's that simple. Those three points, just remember that. Give your testimony. He saved my life. He changed my life. How did He do it? Death, burial, resurrection. He died in my place. He was buried proving that He was actually dead. And He resurrected on the third day, busting the chains of death, securing my salvation for all eternity. And He can do the same for you. It's It's simple. Resurrection. And so Paul now declares, I am standing trial for the hope. Remember, he's talking to King Agrippa. For the hope of the promise made by God to our Father's resurrection. Jesus said in John 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Ask yourself tonight, do I believe this? we got to get away from social Christianity. we got to get away from going to church because that's what we do. Because that's what we've always done. We have to be here because we believe this. Yeah. I believe the resurrection. Yeah. I know He is a resurrected Savior. And I know, by the way, I'm going to be resurrected too. And that, that it charges our faith. And it's absolute truth. Only by receiving Jesus and believing in the truth of resurrection can a person be saved. You've got to have those two elements. Again, simple. He is the way. Believe in Jesus. And receive the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. I had a friend back when I was just out of college. We went to church together. He was a brilliant guy. He was a doctor, internist actually. He was just working on his internship toward becoming a full-fledged MD. And he and his wife and Cheryl and I spent a lot of time together, enjoyed being together. He was a great guy. We worshiped together on Sundays, went to the same church as I said. And then one evening when we were out together, we were chatting and he said, you know, I really don't know if I buy the resurrection. I'm like, what? And I said to him, why do you go to church? Well, it's more of a social thing. You know, all my friends are here. And I was floored. 
You see, the Apostle Paul said in Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. If you don't confess Jesus, if you don't believe in the resurrection, how can you hope? Yeah. The resurrection is the hope. Well, verse 8. Paul says, <laughs> I love it, why is it considered incredible among you people if God does not raise the dead? Well, why, why is this a shocker to you, Agrippa, Bernice? Why would this be thought of as incredible? Continuing with his gutsy offensive, he puts the question now to them. Guess who's on trial now? It's not Paul. Agrippa's on trial. Bernice is on trial. Even Festus, who's listening in, is on trial. Why is this a surprise to you? He puts the question out to them. What is he getting at? You know the history of Israel, Agrippa. You study these things. You know the Hebrew Scriptures. Why does this surprise you? Paul's the one in chains, yet he's getting all up in King Agrippa's face. It's amazing. And after saying this, he kind of settles back a bit and begins to express understanding, even in his own struggle, at first, with Jesus and the resurrection. Verse 9, So then, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And that's another reason I've told you why a lot of people think Paul was on the Sanhedrin. Because he's casting a vote. You wouldn't have a vote to cast unless you were part of the ruling party. Remember last week we talked about how he referred to the Sanhedrin to their faces, brethren rather than fathers. So he called them brethren, and now he says he cast his vote, and so there's a good chance that Paul himself was a member of the Sanhedrin. So having cast my vote against them, verse 11, and as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And note this, being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Furiously enraged? That's so interesting. Why would Paul be furiously enraged if Christianity was a falsehood? See, the truth is, it's typical anger when we reject something we know to be true. When we know the truth is there before us, but we don't want to hear it. We don't want to receive it. Furiously enraged? Hey, it makes sense. You ever been there? Angry over something that you don't want to deal with? You don't want to accept, but you know it's true. There's a very simple word for it. It's rebellion. And the reason why people do that is because rebellion is at the heart of the sin nature, which is at the heart of the heart of man. We have a rebellious tendency. And truth comes up, and it's not a truth that we're comfortable with or we want to accept. And so we begin to get angry about it. And it seems to be typical, as I've said before, of the atheists and agnostics who would debate Christianity. If you don't believe it, why do you waste so much time fighting it? That was Paul's problem. 
furiously enraged. I've got to stop this thing. And he had to ask himself, why? Why does it matter? It's going to crumble and fall apart if it's not true. It's Gamaliel, Paul's teacher's advice to the Jewish leaders at his time. Let it go. If it's of the Lord, you're going to be fighting with Him. If it's not, it's going to fall apart. And that's good advice. But rebellion is present in the sin nature of every human. Verse 12, while so engaged in being furiously enraged, as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, he says, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. I know you're saying we've heard the story. Just listen. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Yeah, we've heard that. We hadn't heard this until right now. If we'd just been reading through Luke, reading through Acts, is the first time we would hear this little nugget. It's hard for you to kick against the goats. I just, I love Jesus' style. He's so cool. The way he calls people out. This is a new twist. Paul is kicking against what he knows to be true but does not want to accept. The goads, it's, it's a word that means prods. You know, like cattle prods. You would use a goad to force a cow into the pen or wherever you wanted him to go and Jesus says, you're kicking against the goads, Paul. Proverbs 13.15 says, The way of the treacherous is hard. It's a difficult road to go head to head with God. To try and make your own way, to force your will. Jesus calls Paul out. You're fighting an uphill, losing battle, son. You're kicking against the goats. It's hard, isn't it? It's so cool of Jesus to call that out. What is he doing? He's tapping into Paul's own conscience. Which clearly, and we wouldn't have known if not for Jesus pointing this out. Clearly this had been bothering Paul for a while. Clearly even while walking the road to Damascus, Paul is thinking somewhere in the recesses of his mind, I wonder if I should be doing this. But I have to do this. But I'm not sure if I should be. But I have to. But I don't know if this is right. What if I'm wrong? He's kicking against the goads. What are the goads in your life? I mean, think about that. What are the things you're kicking against? What are you pushing back against? What are you refusing to accept? What would Jesus tell you are your goads? If He were speaking to you right now, would He say, it's hard to kick against the goads, isn't it? You know what I want you to do. And this is where the grace of God is beautiful. He is so gracious that He will goad us, but He will not force us. He will direct us, but He will not drive us. He'll say, we can do this, or you can do that. But that path is difficult. How are you rebelling? How am I kicking against the goads? I've been thinking through this all week long. What are the goads of God in my life? Verse 15. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, a marteo, not only to the things which you have seen, but also the things in which I will appear to you, 
rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you. So note this, he had problems with Jews and Gentiles alike. You know that, we've seen the problems. It's not going to be easier going to the Gentiles. In fact, in many ways it's harder because here comes this Jew. And the anti-Semitism was as strong in the world then as it is in the world now. But he would go to the Gentiles who would be difficult, hard on him. And Jesus says, verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. From the dominion of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. And there he goes again making it all about himself. It's always all about Jesus. Ask Jesus, he points to himself. Ask Paul, he points to Jesus. It's all about him. Now, the Islamic State... The Islamic State is focused on the Levant. Right? The, the Islamic State of the Levant, ISIL, you may have heard some refer to it as ISIL, ISIS, the Islamic State of, of, of Syria and Iraq. The Islamic State of Al-Sham. Al-Sham is the Arabic for the Levant. What is the Levant? If you've heard that, it's Turkey all the way around the eastern rim of the Mediterranean Sea, dropping down through Lebanon, through Syria, through Israel, including Jordan, all the way down into Egypt. That's the Levant. It was area previously held by Muslims during the reign, the rule of the Ottoman Turks. And ISIS wants it back. That's not all they want. But they want that foothold back. Why? Because to a Muslim, to own land, to have land that was conquered, they think, by Allah, and then to lose it is a sin. They must get it back. Land that once belonged (laughs) to their incredibly powerful God, who can't apparently keep his land. But, nonetheless, (laughs) the Levant. That is, gang, that's the dominion that ISIS is looking to set up. And it will fall. Meanwhile, world leaders think, if we can just turn down the temperature a bit, we can save the world. And it's one of the most foolish things I've ever witnessed in my life. World leaders gathering in Paris just after a terrorist attack to talk about the temperature. To mess with the thermostat. We just need to keep it you know, from going more than a degree or two Celsius. Well, that's brilliant. Both are blind. Both the world leaders trying to save the world, which is not man's to save, and ISIS trying to dominate the world, which they will not dominate. They're blind to the two dominions. There are two. There is the dominion of darkness and the dominion of light. There is the dominion of Satan and there is the dominion of God. The dominion of darkness is temporary and it is crumbling. Now you may look around the world right now and say because of ISIS and because of all the the terror and the bloodshed and the murder and and it's just awful in the world today, how can you say that the dominion of darkness is crumbling because they're pulling out all the stops right now? Satan is doing everything he can right now because it's almost over. Because he's just about done. And I believe he senses that, and so he is just going rabid. But it's crumbling. 
And he will not succeed. We know that. The dominion of darkness. Now, people can choose the dominion of darkness. People are sometimes captured, held by the dominion of darkness. Some don't even know it. But Jesus told Paul that he is sending them to open their eyes so they can turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God. And by the way, once again, we see Jesus being absolutely clear that Satan is real, is a person, not some vague notion of the force. The dominion of darkness is not counter, not as strong as the dominion of light. It is simply the absence of light. We've talked about that recently. The greater dominion of light is glorious. It's eternal. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20, God raised Jesus from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. There will never be a name greater than Jesus and never a dominion that surpasses His. What dominion do you dwell in? There are far too many Christians who claim the light but dwell in the dominion of darkness. We do it when the lights go down in the theaters watching movies that are of the dominion of darkness. We do it when we turn on the video games that are of the dominion of darkness. Not all games. Mario's fine. You know, Yoshi, he's cool. But when I think about where Christians go, the dominion of darkness is a lure even for the sons and daughters of the light. And Paul would say to the Thessalonian church, we are sons of light and sons of day. We are not of darkness. We should be sober and alert and awake and ready. And I'll say this again. I believe I said this a week or so ago, maybe two weeks ago. The rapture of the church should not catch believers by surprise. Wait, but we don't know the day or the hour. He comes as a thief in the night. Not to you. He comes to thief, as a thief to those who are not expecting Him. But for sons of light, for daughters of light, He comes and we should be ready. Now, I, grant, granted, the moment it happens, every single one of us are going to be like, Whoa! And we'll be with Him. Amen. But, there is a difference between those who are looking for His appearing, living toward the light, living in the dominion of light right now, and those who claim Jesus but live in the dominion of darkness. And we have a choice before us. Jesus calls it out. How do I know which dominion I'm living in? Very simply, answer this question, what dominates your life? What dominates your focus, your your intentions? What's your thing, man? And if it's of light and of Christ, praise the Lord. And if it's dark, get out of there while the getting's good. Revelation 1.6 says, He has made us a kingdom. Priests, to His God and Father, to Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, Paul's now talking and he has quoted Jesus in saying all this on that moment of, of his conversion. And, and he turns now and says, So, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. (laughs) 
this is interesting because it's gutsy. Deeds appropriate to repentance. This is a brave statement for Paul to make to King Agrippa. Because it's very similar to the types of statements John the Baptist was making to another Herod. When John the Baptist said in Matthew 3 verse 8, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And now Paul says before Agrippa, Perform deeds appropriate to repentance. It was John the Baptist who called out Herod Antipas for adulterous living, and he was beheaded for it. And now we've got Paul. Who is he talking to? Antipas' equally adulterous nephew, Agrippa II. And his incestuous half-sister, Bernice. Gutsy move. Gutsy comment on the part of Paul. And again, this is, this is not self-defense here. This is Paul on offense. He's making the charge. In verse 21, For this reason some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day, testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer. And that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Agrippa, Paul says, this is the stuff of the Hebrew prophets that you have studied. You got a reputation of being a student of the word. Well, guess what? All I'm doing is proclaiming exactly what you know to be true. What you yourself have studied. The stuff of the Old Testament prophets. Agrippa was completely familiar with this. Isaiah 42, verse 6, I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. Isaiah 49, verse 6, he says, Is it too small a thing? It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I'll also make you a light of the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Isaiah 60, verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you, and His glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And Paul wrote to the Ephesian church, chapter 5, verse 14, For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper! And arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Agrippa, you know all this stuff. I'm not telling you anything new. Resurrection? The Christ would suffer and then be raised? It's all in the scriptures that you have studied. Paul knows. Agrippa knows exactly what he's talking about. Meanwhile, Festus is fidgeting on his stone bleacher... Verse 24, while Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Great learning is driving you mad. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. Now, I love how he responds. First of all, he is reasonably gracious. He doesn't turn to Festus and go, I'm not out of my mind, you know, foaming at the mouth. (laughs) Who do you think you are? He's not in a rage here. Paul is doing what Paul always does. Paul is reasoning. And he is reasonable. 
And so he says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. This gracious terminology proves the rationality with which Paul is speaking. It's just that Paul saw a golden opportunity to make a gutsy offensive. And finally, number three, Paul begins goading openly. Verse 26, For the king knows about these matters. And I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. What's he talking about? The resurrection of Jesus. Hey, listen, 2,000 years later, some of us might think that maybe it kind of happened and people really didn't know what took place. That it kind of snuck by them. And how can they be expected to believe? And of course, how can we 2,000 years later? Not so. Paul declares, everybody knew about this. This was not a hidden thing. This was public knowledge. For believers and non-believers alike, everybody knew that Jesus was crucified. Everybody knew about the preaching of Jesus of Nazareth. And everybody knew that there was a massive claim that He had risen from the dead. And countless people claimed to have seen Him with their own eyes. Everyone knew. I love that phrase. This has not been done in a corner. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, don't live your faith in a corner. Live it in the light. We have the greatest truth in the history of the world. And it was not done in a corner. Therefore, neither should our faith be done in a corner. King Agrippa, verse 27, Do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Paul, dude. It's amazing. He goes right for the heart of the king. And Agrippa replied to Paul, In a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. Or... In a short time, will you persuade me to become a Christian? Or? (laughs) See, it all depends on voice inflection. This is like a text message. Or an email. You never really know what the person's saying when all you see is the words. And this can be, in the Greek, can be taken one of several different ways. Was Agrippa saying, Dude, I am right on the verge of believing here. What you are telling me? Wow, yeah, it's persuasive. Or is Agrippa saying, you think you're going to make me a Christian? Come on. It all depends on his voice inflection. What I can tell you with certainty is there would be no fruit of repentance in King Agrippa's life. So I'm pretty sure what he was saying was, he was laughing it off. (laughs) A short time will you persuade me to become a Christian? Because he's looking around and everybody's all laughing with him. He knew the facts. He heard the truth. He just wasn't willing to change the lifestyle and she was sitting right beside him. What's heart-wrenching here is the thought that Agrippa might have been that close. I can tell you the most heart-wrenching thing for me, Les and I talk about this often, is the thought that on any given Sunday or Wednesday, someone might be that close to giving their life to Jesus and turning it all over to Him. And they don't do it. That close to an eternity with Jesus and then turning away. That close. It is in my mind the most tragic place to be 
on the verge of salvation but never getting there. And so many come that close. And the Lord, Peter says, is not slow about keeping His promises. As some count slowness, He's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. 2 Peter 3.9 Imagine how Jesus feels when He sees people that close. There's that old hymn we used to sing when I was a kid growing up, Almost Persuaded. Almost Persuaded. I didn't understand it as a kid. I'm like, it's almost over. (laughs) Almost you persuade me. Just not quite. Verse 29, Paul says, I would wish to God that whether in a short or long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day as he looks over that amphitheater, might become such as I am, except for these chains. I don't wish that on anybody. What Paul's saying is, I wish that you had the freedom in Christ that I have. This chained up Jew declares. What's he saying? Believers unchained. I want you to be believers unchained, neither imprisoned by death, nor by sin, nor by the dominion of darkness. Not believers still in chains, but believers who are truly free in Jesus. But again, there are so many, like Felix and Drusilla, right there. So many, like Agrippa and Bernice, as sinful as both of these two couples were, they still were right on the verge of salvation. Why? Because the gospel was clearly presented to them. All they had to do was accept it. And all the incest washed away. And all the bitterness, gone. And all the arrogance, done for. And all the greed, history. All the sin that soaked their lives would be done away with if only they accepted the Gospel. Jesus said in John 3.17, God did not send the Son in the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe, listen, has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Jesus called it the dominion of darkness, the dominion of light, So many are right there. You're going to talk to somebody. Some of you, someone here tonight is going to talk to somebody over the next couple of weeks who's right there. My prayer is that every one of us just keep speaking the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Don't hesitate. They may look hardened. They may look... Look at King Agrippa and Bernice. Incestuous. How bad can a person be? How sinful can they be? And you might look at a couple like that and go, well, they'll never receive the gospel. I might as well not waste my breath. Please, waste your breath. Because even Agrippa and Bernice were that close. Well, verse 30. The king stood up, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had gone aside, they began talking to one another, saying... (laughs) This man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, 
this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Paul, why did you do it? Because Paul was squarely in the will of Jesus. He appealed to Caesar. Did did he do it intentionally? I absolutely believe he did. Why? Because Jesus had told him, take courage, Paul, for as you solemnly witnessed for me, for my cause at Jerusalem, you will do so at Rome as well. And so seeing the chance of, again, having an all-expenses-paid trip to Rome, Paul took it. I appeal to Caesar. And to Caesar, he will go. Father, we appeal to the Spirit of the living God. We appeal to You, Lord, to use each and every one of us as mouthpieces of the Gospel. To be bold with the truth. To share our testimony. The great things Jesus has done, You have done, Lord, in our lives. And to bring people to the death, the burial, and the resurrection that they might believe and be saved. Father, may we not lean on our own understanding assuming this person or that person just isn't there. May we assume that every person is right on the verge of salvation. And use us, Lord, to speak truth into every life into which we come in contact. Father, I lay this before You. I ask that You move and motivate me to do this. And us all, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.